Hey everyone, good morning. Thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with Ian Rowe. Ian is a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also a senior visiting fellow at, at the Whitson Center. He also wrote writes for the 1776 Unites campaign, and he's starting a new, I don't want to say uh, schools or a school. It's called Vertex Partnership Academy. Is that like one school? Is that many schools? Or it, it will become a network, but the first campus. So it's going to become a network of character-based international baccalaureate uh, public charter high schools with the first one launching in the South Bronx next year, 2022. All right. Awesome. Thanks. Well, thank you very much for coming on. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so, I mean, I reached out to you because I, I read an article you'd done, I think it was in USA Today. It was about anti-racism in education and the bigotry of low expectations. Yes. A hard, a hard bigotry of low expectations. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I I don't see what's soft about it. So I'd like to speak to you about that if you don't want to start with, but you know, I'd like to get into you with, um, I saw an interview you did, or I think it was a panel you were on about history and edu like education, like teaching history in, in classes and stuff like that. So if we can speak on about education a bit as well. Well, especially because that, that, that event occurred on January 6th. Yeah, I, I know I, it was because I was watching it after the fact and it was like, oh, geez, it's, it's on the exact same day. Uh, I shouldn't laugh, I guess, but anyways, yeah. So if you wouldn't mind like talking a bit about that article and then, you know, we can go from there. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me on. Uh, always a pleasure. I've listened to a, a, a couple of your podcasts and um, you're, you're doing a great, you're on a great journey yourself. It sounds like, and that you had an experience, you left the United States, you came back and there's a very different mindset in the country. And, uh, and so it's good for people to recognize how things have changed uh, so dramatically. Uh, and it is, I think, really important to kind of dig, you know, what's underlying, you know, what's, what's, what's underneath that. Um, so thank you for the opportunity to chat. So, so uh, yeah, so I can speak about the USA Today piece. Uh, you know, for the last decade, I've run a network of public charter schools, elementary and middle schools uh, in the South Bronx and the Lower East Side of Manhattan, almost exclusively low-income kids, uh, uh, black and brown kids, black and Hispanic kids, whose parents, you know, entered the lottery for our schools. You know, we had, we had thousands of um, uh, kids on the wait list, unfortunately, because parents are desperate for good uh, education for their kids. And, even though a number of our parents may have faced racial discrimination in their, in their own lives or other challenges, they know they want to ensure that their kids have a shot at the American dream. And so, uh, and a part of that is ensuring that the schools that they're sending their kids to have really high expectations for their kids. They're not going to uh, tell them that they can't succeed or that, by virtue of their identity or one aspect of their identity, they're hobbled uh, or, or that they can't do something. And uh, late last year, you know, this came to be that the San Diego uh, school system uh, discovered when they looked at their grading system that 80% of black kids were achieving passing grades. 80%. And they also discovered that 93% of white students were achieving a passing grade. And so they step back and say, how can we improve? 
which is, you know, which is a good thing to do. But instead of asking the question, well, what is it that's contributing to success? Is it that those 80% of black kids are, are studying more? Is it that the 93% of white kids are taking advantage of teacher tutoring hours? Are they doing more homework? The leadership said, no, 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 we're gonna, we're gonna study the failure component. So if 80% of black kids were passing, that means 20% were receiving either a D or an F grade. And that meant 7% of white students were receiving either a D or an F grade. And that 13 percentage point disparity, that's what we gotta focus on. That must be due to systemic racism. And so therefore, we're going to become an anti-racist school district. And among the first steps that they made on some assumption that black kids can't get their homework in on time. So in the name of anti-racism, they said, we're now gonna eliminate that requirement for, for everybody, for all 106,000 students within the San Diego school system. It's, it's, you know, it, it, it's one of these things, like, wait, what? And, and so, so you see, like, it's, it's a very tangible example of, of somehow this desire to achieve an equity of failure actually results from ignoring the ingredients of success. You know, as an educator, when you, when you run schools, it's really important to ensure that you're checking if kids are understanding along the way, that you're not just waiting until the end of the year to see if mastery has been achieved. And also study habits are really important. So when you start to send the signal that, eh, you don't have to hand in homework on time, it's, 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 it's literally forging the low expectations. It's, 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 it's telling you that, well, you know, we all have to come down to the standard that, because, you know, these black kids, they can't get their homework done on time. Yeah. That low expectation thing and bringing the standards down. I mean, or recently, well, recently, like it's in the last year, I read this book acting white and it wasn't the book by Buck. It was, you know, it was a critical race theory book or anti-whiteness book type of thing. And the prologue of the book was about how Obama talked, dressed and acted white. And the rest of the book was about how you shouldn't act white. And well, the first thing I, when I read that was, all I could think of was you're calling people uppity now. I mean, that's all it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I mean, but it comes from a PhD, so it's okay, I guess. Like you're taking away the tools that all children need. You know, if you were worried, like, I don't understand, like, if you're worried about, you know, black and brown kids who aren't doing as well, what does not focusing on the fundamentals, like reading, writing, and arithmetic, what, like, when you move away from that, how do you expect them to succeed? And I'll just go on a little bit from this. It's in South Africa in 2016, they had a conference at the university of Johannesburg said that said science was fall. It was basically the philosophy science, department. Science, science must fall. So it was the philosophy department talking with the science department. And then for two years after that, they had more conferences on the same subject and that, that they changed that to decolonize science. Oh. Now this year, or was it late last year, early this year, I read an article coming out from South Africa saying we are going to decolonize physics. We are looking for a black physics for South Africa. I mean, that's the worst possible thing you can do. Like there, there is no black physics. There is no, you know, this urge to say, okay, well this, this, you know, science reason objectivity that belongs to white people. That's, I mean, that's what racists used to say. 
racists do say. Yeah, no, but that's what I mean. Like that—that's how you kept black and brown people out of science. And now to make achievements in science, you want to do this? Like I don't understand the logic of that. And well, and uh, by the way, by the way, there there's a vaccine for the COVID uh, pandemic that's now being spread across the world. Thankfully, do we care about the racial background of the the all the scientists and? biologists and all the incredible people that, you know, is, should we, before we take this, are we now going to um, assess the racial makeup of the people who contributed? Some people were when, uh, when Oxford was announcing their vaccine efforts, someone in the UK put out, I hope Oxford doesn't make the vaccine first because that would be more imperialism. You know, what? I, I bet, I wonder if the person who wrote that has gotten a vaccine. Let, let's just put it this way. Creating race-based um, uh, interpretations like that does disservice uh, to everyone. It, it makes us see the world through a racial prism where we ascribe characteristics of whiteness, being on time, being conscientious, working hard, being diligent. Somehow that we ascribe things like that to whiteness or, or or intelligence and 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 so therefore like, what is that what is the implication for being black or someone who's not white you know it, it's like the simplistic racist uh view of the world 100 uh, percent um i wanted to because you your new uh, your new project you're talking about um, starting those schools and then you'd mentioned that you had been doing you know you'd worked in charter schools for a decade I recently read uh, Thomas Sowell's book, Charter Schools and Their Enemies. Yeah. Now, I haven't, you know, I, I wasn't really following a lot of this stuff. I've been following some of this stuff about education, just looking at the curriculums that are coming out. One of the things that struck me when I was reading his book was, I think it was in New York City, there was in the same building, a charter school and a public school. Yeah, a another district school, just charter schools are public schools. So Okay, sorry. Um, yeah, so charter school, I, I, I get I get these things a little mixed up no, 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 no believe me you're not the only one it's important just to clarify but they were in the same building yep and the charter school students were you know getting some of the top marks in their country and the, the other school that weren't they were like near the bottom now if that doesn't give you when people see data like that like why don't they at least want to bring the other public schools up to the same kind of standards or and I know, okay, like I know charter schools aren't a, a silver bullet because you can have charter schools that are trying something completely experimental that's not going to work. You can have charter schools that are experimental. I mean, the, the, the whole idea of charter schools emerged uh, two decades ago because parents were seeking innovations and they were seeking compelling alternatives to the schools in their neighborhood that unfortunately were providing a a terrible education for their kids. Um, and by the way, when I read, when I ran charter schools, we were in that situation where we were co-located with traditional district schools. So we were recruiting kids from the same neighborhood, same building, actually receiving less money per pupil because, because of union opposition, charter schools actually receive less money. So with all of those conditions, our schools far outperformed uh, the district schools. And, and you know, we, we tried to very much be um, 
partners, you know, tried to offer shared training, shared techniques, shared the way that we did our schedules, reading instruction, you know, tried to, because we were all part of one community. I, you know, I, I care, I mean, I care for the kids that were enrolled in our schools in our building, but I also care about the kids who were in the district school because I saw what was happening. Um, and so you, you, your, your question, you know, when you see such huge educational gaps in favor of the charter schools normally, why wouldn't we want to study that and be positive? And unfortunately, you know, it's a much longer story, but there are people who benefit um, from preserving the status quo. And, uh, you know, it's why I'm now launching a new network of uh, international Bakri at high schools in the South Bronx to demonstrate that we don't have to have the failure rate that we do in, in District 7 in the South Bronx in 2015, uh, for all the kids that started in 2015, four years later in 2019, only 2% graduated from high school ready for college. That means they started in 2015 and some kids dropped out altogether, never made it to their senior year, or they did graduate, but, but a significant portion of them couldn't even read the diploma that had just been conferred upon them. So, so that's outrageous and it doesn't have to be that way. And so what charter schools provide is the ability for innovative leadership to uh, put forth a set of ideas on the kind of school that they'd like to lead. And then if they don't work, they're shut down, you know? And so uh, this to me is one of the most fundamental uh, solutions when you do look at, for example, racial gaps in educational outcomes. No one's denying that these gaps exist. The question is, what's causing it and what's the solution? And if we start to realize that there's... Um, it's not monocausal, meaning that if you look at these racial gaps, there's only one answer and it's systemic racism. Uh, and that it could actually be that there's not enough choice of high quality schools. Let's think about that. You start to uh, develop a whole new set of interventions to address these issues. Yeah, um, like when you mentioned that, like the, I've spoken to a few people about you know, this specific thing that you, um, you know, like just focusing on systemic racism or, you know, focusing on whiteness or whatever. If I look at it, my read of it, it started around 97 where they made that shift. Like the mid to late nineties is where they made that shift from. It's looking at it, looking at it objectively and trying to figure out what's going on to saying, Oh, it must be racism. And I'm not saying that it, that became global at that point, but I think that's when the little shift happened. I mean, that's doing a detriment to yourselves. I mean, I don't want to say that there is you know, no racism or anything like that. And I'm sure it plays some factor, but if it, even if you had the best school in the world in a you know, crime-ridden poor neighborhood, that's not going to serve those kids. So, I mean, yes, the schools are important. Education is important, but you, know, you might want to, you might have to spend money to you know, boost business in the neighborhood. You might need to help yeah. reduce crime. It's there's a lot of different factors, but to say all of that is a cause of racism. I mean, again, it's you're doing yourself a disservice and you're doing those communities a disservice because you're not looking for what the actual problem might be. 
Well, you know, I, I you know, given, I've, I've been in this work for a long time and gaps exist in the world. Um, yeah, I, you know, doing this work for a long time, you recognize that gaps do exist and gaps exist by race, by gender, but by a whole bunch of other factors too, the number of hours spent studying. And so for me, if you're really genuinely interested in finding solutions, you have to be able to confront uh, the real data and be honest about both factors that might be related to policy or structural, as well as individual behaviors that are within the control of our students, uh, certainly as they enter young adulthood. So, you know, for example, you know, I've done a lot of work on the relationship uh, between family structure and uh, the ultimate success of kids who are being raised in families, right? The stability uh, and structure of a family, you know, married to parent household, the data is overwhelming. It has far greater um, outcomes for both the parents and the children, as opposed to uh, children who are born uh, to single parents, particularly those 24 and under, you know, you've got five or six times the likelihood of poverty, poverty, which then brings on a whole host of other uh, issues. And so if we know that, then it's incumbent upon us to teach young people about the, the passage into young, young, young adulthood, the series of life decisions that give them a, a much greater shot at success. That is, that is something that's within the individual control of seven-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old to control whether or not the country decides that reparations is the answer, right? The, we have to, you know, ensure young people understand their sense of agency, you know, the, the power to influence what's, what's in front of them, you know, things like doing well in school because, you know, all these issues start early. Um, and so when we're concerned about why don't we have representation and, in STEM careers and other things like that, sure. But why would you expect us to have um, equal outcomes when, for example, only 2% of kids in the Bronx are graduating from high school ready for college, right? So we have to think about schooling and the early environments for kids if we really want to address these issues fundamentally. Yeah, no, um, I mean, I've said that a couple of times too. Like it's, if you focus on the college, like, you know, what Harvard does and then they, they increase the, the SAT scores for you know black kids and reduce them for Asians and white kids. You're not doing a service to anyone. You know, you're you're not well, you're right. You're cementing if if you do that, like, yeah, in order for you to get in, we're gonna we're gonna reduce the 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 cut score, reduce the threshold. What other impression can you have than you must be inferior? Like what like what what other what other takeaway is there? It's saying you cannot compete at the same level. There could be people who come in and do well, even though they're they don't meet the the standards that Harvard set. But Harvard's a tough place. You know, it's it's considered one of the best schools. I'm assuming the competition's really hard. If the kids aren't prepared when they're coming in, they're not gonna do well and they're gonna fail. And I mean that might be part of it saying, okay, I'm not good enough. But I always I mean I, my one question was if you have someone that you think, okay, you know what? You've shown potential. You've done really well in high school. You've improved. We need to give you this bump so you can make the cut. Instead of like doing that, why not say, we'll reserve a place for you the following year. In this year, go to a community college, go somewhere, take these prep courses, 
and maintain whatever a B average, you know, they give them some goal like that. And if they can show that they can do that, they're at least they go into Harvard or wherever or Yale or, you know, Caltech or wherever they're going and they've got preparation to succeed. Like, I don't understand why that isn't an option somehow. Uh, I mean, sure. I mean, I would, I would, if that option were to exist though, I would not make it exclusively for black kids. I'd make it available to any kid oh, yeah, no, it that should be. might benefit from an additional year of learning. I mean, in the design of the high school that we're crafting right now, because the international baccalaureate program is very rigorous, it may be that we have what's called a prep 10 year, which is so after your first year of ninth grade, we assess you and say, you know, could you benefit from an additional year of learning? So, so as opposed to going directly into 10th grade, there'd be what's called a prep 10 year. So you might have uh, grades nine, prep 10 and 10 before you enter the last two years, which is the really um, uh, high focus of the International Baccalaureate Diploma and Careers Program. But we're not going to say that that prep 10 is only available to, you know, the Hispanic kids because you might, you know, it's, it, it, it should be based on the, where the de developmental stage is of the student. Um, and, and if that, you know, if that, and if that's, uh, will work for them, great. I mean, I went to Cornell University undergraduate in the College of Engineering, and I was one of the few black um, uh, male students there. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, I saw a number of my colleagues fail out. Um, you know, they were rushing fraternities and doing these other things, so there might be other reasons. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but, um, uh, but I saw it, you know, like really talented um, uh, guys in particular, uh, didn't make it and to the graduation and that, you know, you have to wonder, was it that they were set up to fail, you know? Yeah. And, and, and it, and for me, again, that's why I run schools because I want to ensure that when you see a black student at a top university, you're not wondering, are you there just because, Yep. You know, they lowered the standard for you to get in because that's insidious. Oh, that's awful. And that's one of the reasons I hate that low expectations. Things like, I, I don't want a job because I'm brown. I don't want a promotion because I'm brown. You know, I want it on my merit. I understand a pure meritocracy has some issues, but, you know, you should have people striving for getting accepted for their performance, not for. Yeah. Their... And, you know, and look, I certainly pure merit would be great, but. We also have to understand human behavior, <laughs> and and it's not as if we're all th there's no opportunity to learn from lived history. People get jobs for merit. People get jobs because they're part of networks. People get jobs for a whole host of reasons, and so we have to ensure our kids understand that it's not racism per se. It's it's how does the world work? You know, if you if you want to make money. Do you uh, study a, a, a field that if you look at the data, you know, there's high unemployment rates uh, or do you want to go into fields like finance or engineering where graduates make a lot more money? Like, oh, okay, I'll do that. Like, or if you want to meet leadership within a particular industry, well, there are actually there are student groups, there are other ways to become part of that community. And so that's merit too. You know, the harder you work, the more you achieve, absolutely. And we as adults need to educate our kids about how the world works, not because of some 
oppressive racial structure, but humanity has you know been around a long time. And 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 if we know that there's certain behaviors that are a lot more likely to put you in the um, proximity of success, let's teach that to our kids. So yeah, so it is about merit. And of course, we'd all love a pure system based on merit, but nothing is that pure. And you have to understand the mechanics of how people are successful. Oh, yeah. No, I, I get that. That's a good point. Um, something you'd mentioned earlier, and it was like you used to have waiting lists for your charter schools and your know, parents were trying to get in. Uh, your recent episode about, uh, I think it's Pineywood School. Yeah. Um, I forget the, the name of the your guest, but he talked about going to seven different schools, I think between like kindergarten and grade seven or something like that. Yeah, in his own life, yeah. right. Okay, so my family moved here in 70, uh, 75. I started going to school in December 75. I started going to school in 76. Between kindergarten and grade six, I went to eight different schools. Wow. Uh, a couple of times because I moved, uh, my parents moved, but mainly because my parents were like, oh, we heard this school is really good. So we're going to put you in there. And then, oh, no, we heard this school is doing better. So they were looking for the best possible right. school they could send me to. Right. Was, and it sounds like they had the power of choice. Yeah, it was it was all they were all public schools. And in that time in Quebec, it was weird because they just they were about to pass a law about the French language. And we came in just below it. If we come in after that, I would have been forced to go to French schools. But we came in before it. My parents had the choice to send me to English or French schools. Um, you know, and then there was also a divide between Catholic and Protestant school boards at the time in Quebec. So that's so yeah, but they did have that. I mean, there were private schools that you could go to and whatever. My parents couldn't afford it, obviously. Um, but yeah, they so but they chose it. But you know, that's difficult for a kid as well. But things like that kind of go or waiting list at your charter schools. I mean, that again, that should go to show that the parents are looking for a better option. And I'm just gonna just add one other thing. Like, I'm not a big fan of Derek Bell. Um, but one thing that he wrote that kind of stuck with me that I think was really important, but he took it too far was when he was talking about um, desegregating schools. And he said they should desegregate segregated education, not the schools. And that actually is a good point. I mean, Bell goes a little bit further past what, that. What do you mean by that? Okay, instead of busing kids an hour to go to a better school, why not mm -hmm. fix the school in their neighborhood? Of course. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that, I mean, that should I mean, have been a no-brainer. But Or the busing should have been a stopgap you know, for a few years while you fix that. Well, there's something very um, um, uh, insidious about the very idea of busing, right? That we've got to, in order for a black kid to get an edu good education, we've got to bus them out of their predominantly black community into a white neighborhood, white school, because that's where the good education is. It's actually one of the most... Um, in, in my view, actually racist um, practices that we just sort of accept. Um, and mo many people aren't familiar with something called the Rosenwald schools, which were uh, the idea of Booker T. Washington in the early 1900s, where during segregation, he had the idea that okay, fine, we don't need white, you know, okay, if our schools are gonna be segregated, fine. We're gonna create great schools. And so he convinced Julius Rosenwald, who at the time led uh, the Sears company, which was the largest retailer, like imagine Walmart today, financing 
more than 5,000 schools in the South that exclusively taught black children with black educators, high expectations, high standards. And they said, fine, we'll, 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 we'll be in segregated schools because segregation doesn't mean for us inferior. And the irony, the irony is that the Brown versus Board of Education decision that said, you know, that separate is unequal and separate is inherently inferior made the Rosenwald schools unconstitutional and legal. They had to disband. So you just think about that. So, so this perception that you must have racial integration in order for black kids to be successful is, you know, is just ridiculous. I mean, I, I run schools in the heart of the South Bronx. It's not as if we're going to wait for suddenly a, a wave of middle-class white people to show up. Yeah, no, but I, I, for, 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 I was like, oh, thank the Lord. You know, like, <laughs> we're going to run great schools and we're going to have high expectations. And, and so there is this, so there is this underlying insidious assumption um, and we just got to fight against it. Let's just say you had schools in black neighborhoods, or those those Rosenwald schools. Instead of debanding them, I said, okay, you know what? We'll open them up to everyone. Exactly. If they were right. in the deep south, I'm sure there were poor white neighborhoods where the schools were atrocious that might have benefited from those Rosenwald schools. So if you, you know what, it's probably true. It's probably true. But because they may have assumed, well, I'm poor white, I can't go to that black school because somehow it's inferior. You know, who knows? I mean, all all this stuff cuts cuts all ways, right? Okay, take when they did the desegregation. If the school wasn't up to speed, okay, we you need a stopgap measure. So we're gonna bus for two years until we fix this school or something. I can understand that, but again, at that point, if you if it's a school in you know a predominantly black neighborhood and it's next to a you know low income white neighborhood as well, you know, like it's an urban like you know like you're talking about the Bronx or if you're in like your know, other, you know, in like South Central Chicago or something like that. If you're, or if you're like in places like that, and there's poor neighborhoods, one's predominantly black, one's predominantly white. You fix a school in the black neighborhood. I mean, if I was a white family in the other neighborhood and I'm close enough to that, I'd want to send my kids there. <laughs> like, by the way, so so uh, in the South Bronx, our you know this the network I used to lead, um, we converted this dilapidated uh, two-story 55,000 square foot building that had been empty for four years and we transformed it into this five-story 85,000 square foot building. It's all boys school. It's an amazing school, not just the building, but what's happening inside in terms of the education, you know, and now what's, guess what's starting to happen? Like, like people see that and they're like, oh, wow, I, that may, maybe I'll move to that neighborhood or, or maybe I'll try to get my kid into that school, you know? So yeah, quality is the thing. Build great schools, have high expectations. If you want to deal with race related issues, that is a much better place to start. In addition to focusing on having intact families so that our kids, when they, when they go to the great school can also go home to a stable environment. And I think we focus on those kinds of things. We'll see a lot better results across race. For the, from the administrators and the teachers, people like yourselves, okay, pride that people like our, my, our schools and they want to come here. But from the students themselves, I mean, we're setting an example for other people. People are looking up to us. I mean, that, like, you get pride from, or maybe I shouldn't say, you know, I, I got pride from when I did well, you know, I, I, 
Okay, I was an awful student. I got good marks. <laughs> like, I just I could I could sponge everything up. But you know, like I there's some people who were ashamed because they got good grades and oh, I don't want to seem like you know, yeah, I don't want to seem like a bookworm or I don't want to seem like a nerd or whatever. You should be able to take pride in your accomplishments and you should be able to show that. Um, there's you'd mentioned like I, I talked, I said this at the start about the you did that little um, conference on history, but you mentioned that a couple of things that you know, like people not really knowing about some of this stuff. Okay, you were working on the 1776 Unites project, yeah. Now the 1776 Commission got taken off. The, the White House website now, completely disconnected. Yeah. 1776. I, I know, I know, I know that. I, I know you're completely disconnected. But when when Trump came out with that, were you like, oh no, they're going to take something away from our project? <laughs> Uh, no, we did have concern that pe- just simply because of the fact that 1776 was in the title um, for both, that people would assume that what you know what we were launching, and for for your viewers who aren't familiar with it, uh, about a year ago, a group of Black-led scholars, led by Bob Woodson, who's an amazing uh, leader uh, who's been helping low-income communities for 40 years uh, develop pathways to move from persecution to prosperity by, you know, having, you know, embracing the principles of family and faith and hard work and entrepreneurship and a commitment to education. He had the idea in response to the New York Times 1619 project that a group of Black-led scholars called 1776 Unites should launch a movement to show that there is not monolithic thought within the Black community and that there's a strong segment of the Black community that believes that has encountered racism, has encountered discrimination, and yet we understand the history of our people in the United States, the story of resiliency, the story of determination, the the story of actually embracing the founding ideals of the country uh, to be successful. And, you know, it's been quite powerful um, because there's such a dominant narrative that if you're black, you're just supposed to be a victim and oppressed and terrified to walk on the street because the police are just going to come up and shoot you. And, you know, we, we, we just have a very different view of what, uh, what can be possible for our children with high expectations. And if they do understand the true founding ideals of our country. I mean, there's, there's a true founding ideals. Um, I looked into this a little bit. I could be wrong here, but I think there's only two States that require civics classes, like for graduation. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's, like, I think you need to bring civics back. There was an article today. I read it this morning. Because of the high number of young people that voted, you don't need civics classes anymore. It's like, well, A, you don't really have them. (laughs) (laughs) And they weren't voting because they had a strong understanding of civics. They were voting because they've been whipped up in a frenzy on one political aisle or the other. And, you know, it's, uh, I mean... No, it's actually a very serious thing. I mean, the the national, the nation's report card, the national assessment of educational progress, you know, every couple of years measures things like reading and math. And it also measures what is the understanding of history and civics in our country. And the last um, assessment that came out said that only 15%, 1-5% of all 12th graders in our country have even a basic understanding of American history or, or our civic institutions, how they work. And so is it really that surprising when you have such a low percent of our populace that understands our country's uh, framework 
that the president of the United States can say to his supporters, we can overturn this election. I mean, the vice president can just ignore the will of the people, right? You're like, oh, well, maybe that's why people are so easily accepting of this idea. And by the way, on the other side, the 1619 project, is it so surprising that uh, when people do have such a low understanding or low grasp of the true full story of the African-American experience in the United States, that that, that can gain traction as well. So on, on both sides, the lack of high quality civic education and an understanding of American and world history is paying real consequences for us as a nation. Okay, and I 100% agree with you there. Like I, you know, I focus a bit, or I should say I focus quite a bit on like the critical race theory-based education stuff, but you have to talk about things in the South as well. Like I know Texas and Mississippi for sure. I think Tennessee as well, and I'd have to look at some of the other states, but where, you know, they downplay Jim Crow when they teach history, where they don't really talk about yeah. slavery or, oh, you know, the slaves didn't have it that bad. <laughs> okay, like that's completely yeah. awful as well. Like you don't no, no, want that, that. that. No, no, right. Right. No, no, I agree. In fact, this, this is, this is a legitimate beef that, that um, a lot of folks who, who look at how history is taught in our country. It's one of the reasons I really advocate for studying history using uh, primary documents, not looking at textbooks, which are always all written through whatever the ideology is of the authors, you know, who, who are trying to put history in a popular context, in a in a in an ideology that fits with whatever the author is, as opposed to going back in time, you know, reading the documents from 1772, and you know, and reading the Federalist Papers, and actually transporting yourself in a place where the future is not the future was not known. You know, it's really easy for us for all of us to sort of look back and say, weren't those people evil? Weren't they terrible? Look at the things that they did and recognize that the culture at that time or the context at that time forced you to grapple with issues. And, and a lot of the primary documents bring that out. And I think the more that young people understand that we're, you know, you, we, we live in the present and you, you, when you look at history, you have to take into account context and chronology um, and all of that's missing. And, and you know, so I, for one, again, that's why I'm running schools because I feel for me, it's my vehicle through which to ensure the next generation doesn't replicate some of the things that we're seeing today. Do you think um, in schools, so, okay, you have English class, then you have math class, then you have geography, then you have history. Now, something like English. Okay. You learn to read and write. You learned how to make sentence structure. But I mean, when I was a kid and I was going to school, some of our markings on history tests and geography tests and things like that were our, you know, spelling mistakes and that played a small role in it. But, you know, can't you then at the same time use your history class to not necessarily to teach English, instill a love of reading instill a love of writing, you know, if not even a love, like, you know, acceptance of it. And so where they're, it's not like it's a huge chore. I mean, it's, instead of like all these specialized courses, this is history. We're only going to learn history and, you know, you need to learn these dates yep. and this, that. Yep. I don't know if that's a possible way of doing things. I don't know if that, if, you know, if, if that's how it works or. Well, Obey, you, you, you've just uncovered probably one of the 
the biggest ideological uh, battles uh, over the last 30 years in terms of teaching reading um, for a lot of, for a lot of uh, philosophy of reading instruction. Uh, some people believe that first you learn to read and then you read to learn as a sequential process. And the implication of that philosophy of learn to read, read to learn, is that in the early grades, you know, from pre-K through probably third grade, uh, content uh, isn't really the, the important thing. So you're, you're, you're reading um, disconnected content because all you're really interested in is building skills, you know, the learn to read. So you're, if, you, if you read a passage, what's the author's the main idea that the author is trying to get across or what's the genre. So, so content is agnostic. And then you do read to learn, which is that you're now reading about the Brooklyn Bridge or you're reading about American history or you're, you're, you're building your core body of knowledge. That uh, ideology has been soundly rejected by some or by many, uh, especially E.D. Hirsch, if you're, if you're ever um, familiar with something called cultural literacy, his philosophy was you have to, it shouldn't be a sequential process. It actually should be parallel so that when you're learning to read, the, what you're reading is actually consequential. It's not just some random stuff. So you're actually, while you're learning about how to interpret the main idea, you're learning about the foundational elements of civil society. You're learning about our government. You're learning about history. And so it's, a, it's what's called a content-rich approach to reading instruction, where uh, in the early years, you have a much more substantive um, content uh, de uh, delivered to kids. And it's still, um, it's still uh, um, argued today, you know, and partly because now we're in much more of a, um, a testing environment. And so when states say they're going to test and they don't say they're going to have uh, tests that are focused on content, which substantive content, then that leaves, that leads educators to say, okay, great, then we don't have to teach that. And so that's part of the reason you've seen the reductions in social studies being taught. You know, we've gone from five days a week to in some schools, one day, 45 minutes, you know, so there, there are reasons why American history, civics um, are disappearing from uh, schedules, particularly in elementary schools. You know, okay, sticking with the history thing, like I again, getting rid of it to me just blows my mind. I mean, it was one of my favorite subjects, anyways, in school. So maybe that's yeah, a little that, biased. Well, yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, when you have rich content, it's it's a reason to engage kids. But okay, like sticking with the history thing. Okay, Black History Month. I know a few people have talked about this, but is it maybe past the point of saying, okay, you know what, we don't need Black History Month. Black history is part of American history, and when we're going to talk about you know, 1776, we'll talk about the, you know, black Americans at that time who contributed. And when you talk about, like, you put the people in the context of the times that you're discussing. So you don't have Black History Month where you have the greatest hits. You have history taught throughout <laughs> right. the year. Right. And, you know, when you're talking about civil rights, you, you talk about you know, the people of that era. When you're talking about, you know, Brown versus the Board of Education, when you go back to the 30s and 40s, I mean, you you put the people specific to the times you're discussing. Wouldn't that make it a better way of teaching it? Wouldn't that 
show it as hundred percent agree. Again, you know, good intentions. I'm sure the people who originally conceived the idea of a Black History Month had had great intentions, which was to say, let's let's create a specific time to ensure that black history is taught you know it, it came from this place of it's not being taught so let's create a special moment for it to happen you know i think now the compartmentalization isn't um helpful i mean in the whole scheme of things that uh, you know i wouldn't in the whole scheme of things in terms of how do i improve economic and academic and life outcomes for black kids i wouldn't focus on you know getting rid of Black History Month, just because I think that's just another symbolic waste of time that people just invent, you know, invent reasons to get um, uh, agitated over when, you know, 91% of, of Black women 24 and under in 2018 who gave birth gave birth outside of marriage, right? Like, like there, there are much more substantive issues that we need to focus on versus these distractions, which have absolutely no impact on whether or not kids succeed or not. So, so I, yeah, so I mean, I, I, I'm not a big fan of Black History Month, but the truth is I think it's so incidental to the real factors that drive whether or not kids are successful or not that, you know, I give it a pass. Okay, I'm not saying that, fix getting rid of black history month and then like doing like a history where you teach is going to fix anything but yeah i mean and I, I get what your point is oh my god there's you know they got rid of black history month he must be a racist not <laughs> focusing on the fact that okay right. they you know they've actually put in more black history into the curriculum now i'm just you know that those are little you know it's it seems incidental or whatever but it's I think that's where we're at. Like, you know, you mentioned Trump with the, uh, you know, the stealing the vote and I'm not defending Trump in any way here. Like, like that, was, that whole thing was insane. What happened on the stick was insane. I'm just going to give you like just one counter to that. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Everything's horrible. You have to wear a mask. Don't go stand in groups. It's dangerous for you to stand in line to vote, you know, for long periods of time, blah, blah, blah. blah. It's safer to mail vote in by mail, which there's some logic there. But the same people who tell you that then say, well, you know, racism is a worse virus than COVID and saying, basically giving tacit approval to Black Lives Matter protests. Right. When someone sees that, okay, so the virus won't affect me if I go to Black Lives Matter, but it'll affect me if I stand in line to vote. No, people see hypocrisy in that. And, for sure. and it's just, again, like I, this just has nothing, some of it has to do with education. It's like, okay, you can't see the logical fallacies in here. You're not willing to like call it out. Like, I mean, no, no, that's what's tough in our society right now. I mean, we had a summer of riots and protests and violence, and and uh, but for many, they look at January sixth as the only um, example of crazy violence that needs to be punished. I mean, you know, they're they're not necessarily morally equivalent, but it's all bad. You know, I mean, there are many black people that lost their livelihoods this summer. There are many black. Um, kids that were shot, you know, partly because the police pulled back. And, you know, in almost every major city in the United States last year had skyrocketing rates of death, of violence, of homicide, particularly for black people. And so why did that happen? Let's yeah. talk about that. Let's, let's have an honest conversation about what the consequences are of how we choose to sometimes focus on events and choose to ignore others. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't trying to put an equivalency. I was just saying when you're when you're looking at 
when you get those two narratives, they're telling us to vote in by mail because they're trying to steal the election and then vote in by mail because it's too dangerous. But then you can go to this thousand person protest. That's fine. You know, no, I mean, there were actually public health officials who said that the virus of racism was worse than the virus of COVID. So, so therefore, go forth. You know, go forth. And then again, if you don't have a population that's taught critical thinking, you know, not critical theory, uh, but and you're not, you don't have a population that can evaluate things. And again, this comes down to education in a huge way. You know, when you see things like that, okay, you might still say, you know what, I'm going to vote by mail because it is still dangerous, but you're able to call out the hypocrisy. Yeah. And I, yeah, you know, and, and I very much try to see the best in people in that. I think a lot of people who were protesting, you know, they saw the George Floyd tape. They, they, they saw, you know, what they thought happened with Jacob Blake in Wisconsin. Now it turns out he even he admits he was carrying a knife and he was dangerous. You know, a lot of these things turn out to be very different um, when the, when all the facts come out. But, you know, they 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 genuinely want to they see they see injustice in outcomes and there is injustice in outcomes but the solutions that they're being fed by you know Kendi and Robin DiAngelo that all these outcomes must be due to racism and therefore every solution um, you know it's these evil white people and so therefore white people need to you know declare their privilege and and you know do all these things right and and all of it is this insidious um black inferiority the implication of it right and and so what we at 1776 unite said was you know what let's create a compelling alternative let's you know in the voice of black people like if everyone's telling me I'm so oppressed. Well, actually, here's here's strategies for how you can live your life in this country and not be oppressed, while actually acknowledging discrimination and the role of racism, right? And so I think dialogue and compelling alternatives is an important part of how we move forward together as a people. Um, you know, cancel culture and all these things is, is seeking to shut down conversation for me you know, I'd love to debate other black leaders of is reparations the right answer for our people? Is racial equity, um, you know, in every single outcome? You know, I want my kids to beat your kids. <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't I don't want my kid to be equal in every aspect. I mean, what does that even mean? It's like nonsensical. The reparations thing. And I mean, I've heard a lot of different things. I've, you know, you can talk about the Ta-Nehisi Coates version of it. Um, there's but I mean, I think there is something to, if you take a look at some of the legacy, so uh, GIs coming back, you know, soldiers coming back from World War II and I think Korea who didn't get access to the GI Bill, you know, black soldiers coming back. And that does affect the earning yep. potential of those people and then, you know, trickles down. Yeah. You know, redlining, not being able to buy a home, not being able to afford a home. Yep. Again, that affects, you know, right. how much wealth you have. Um and I was speaking to Will Riley, which, about which is illegal, right? Redlining has been illegal since what, late '60s, early '70s. I'm not saying it's still around, but I'm just saying, okay, it might have a little bit less effect now than it did right away. But immediately, that had an effect. So I can see what it's saying. Okay, you know what? Instead of giving people individually money, which I think would be really almost impossible to do. Well, that's what most of the advocates are pushing for. Yeah. They're, they're pushing for 13 to 14 trillion dollar. Uh, massive redistribution program where you have to prove that you're a descendant of slave, 
Um, I think you've, you've had to identify it as a black person for at least 10 years and that the average uh, amount would be, I think like 200, $250,000 per American black descendant of slaves. And, you know, the, the government just starts showering money on people, um, no strings attached, of course. And then, the, and then there's no end to that. But I mean, what, you know, there, there might be an, uh, you know, another round after that. And, you know, and as Nicole Hannah-Jones said on a radio show, if people want to send that money at a, at a Gucci store, that's up to them. So I'm like, OK, so let's have that debate. But I mean, you know, let, let's actually have that conversation. I, mean, I just this is, again, just I'm not a policy expert. I'm not an expert in just about anything. Uh, but wouldn't it be better served to say, OK, you know what? Yes, things need to be done, but we're going to invest. And like literally, like really invest in communities, not just, you know, put up a playground and say, here, we invested, you know, like actually take, I'm not saying it's all going to be all 13 trillion or whatever that number that was, but, you know, we'll invest in small businesses. We'll, we'll fix that, up housing. We'll, we'll now, now you're on my, now you're on my turf, right? You know? Let's have, let, what are the ways that we build wealth within our community? What are the ways that black people have built wealth? What are the ways that people of every background have built wealth? entrepreneurship, uh, home ownership, pooling resources together, education. You know, we haven't talked a lot about faith, you know, but the role of, of, of strong religious values has played a role in almost every important story of people, groups of people that have moved from persecution to prosperity. Like, yeah, let's have conversations. Is, is it that the government should just start showering checks for $200,000 to, to some component of the, of the black community that says that they were, you know, that prove that they were descendants of slave? Is, is that what's really gonna get us where we wanna go? Or is that gonna create a massive, even further racial divide in our country, not deal with the issues of skyrocketing out of wedlock uh, birth rates, the lack of high quality schools in low income communities that serve both black and white, you know, go to Appalachia, it's not like the schools are great there either, right? So it, it, it's this idea that somehow cash replaces the function of a dad who's there for, you know, and a husband who's there for their child or that cash replaces, um, having access to a local neighborhood, high quality school, you know, but let's have that debate. I mean, the thing that frustrates me is that, you know, all these people just seem to be running scared. You know, Kendi doesn't want to debate. Um, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones doesn't want to meet with Glenn Lowry. You know, I'm trying to have set up a debate series with uh, black scholars who are on the side of reparations, you know, no response. You know, so it, it that, that's what's frustrating to me. Like, if these ideas are so good, don't just say it to white people. Let's have a conversation amongst black people about how we as a, how we as a society should move forward. Because that's what used to exist. W.E.B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington. I mean, th these were these were aspects of our community of self determination. And my, my hope is that 2021 is a year that black people actually um, can come together and talk about, like if black lives matter to us, then let's figure out the best, the best way forward as opposed to other people dictating what the path should be. Like, I think what you're also doing with your podcast, you're bringing out like you know, black voices you might not hear. And you're talking about this, this you know, there's a huge 
different, you know, huge viewpoint diversity within the black community. You're not all Tanahasi Coates or Ibram Kendi, uh, but but I, I noticed this uh, with Islam. Nor are nor are, are all whites white supremacists by yeah. being white, right? Yeah, exactly. But one thing I noticed was okay. Um, so I come from a Muslim background. Uh, I, I've been an ex-Muslim for thirty some odd years now. But I noticed it in starting after 9-11, any ex-Muslim or, uh, or reform Muslim or moderate Muslim that spoke out against the, you know, the excesses of Islam, oh, you're a white supremacist. I mean, I Majid Nawaz got called a house Muslim, which is like one of the worst things I heard about that. And, you know, you call them coconuts and Uncle Tom's and native informants. In the native. last Informants. I, I I don't know if that means I inform on natives or if I'm a native that inform. I, I don't know. I, I have no clue. Um, but whatever. Oh, wow. It's just these these horrible things. But well, well, the latest thing, by the way, I think is is uh, was it multiracial whiteness? Oh God, I saw that. But I mean, like, but things like that. Like I've seen that directed towards not even. I, I don't want to say conservative blacks because John McWhorter is not a conservative. But you know, like horrible racial slurs coming from you know other black people or quote unquote progressive whites. And I, well, I mean, that, there it is. I mean, that, if you don't conform to the ideology, then you must not really be black. But, you know, if you don't, if you're not down with the program to say that we, the government's got to give us reparations or just just accept this mantra that if you're black, you're just going to get shot yeah. by the police. And then you actually go look at the data and like, wait a minute, like less than 10 black people got shot by the police and there are way more black people being shot by other black people. Why don't we talk about that? Because if you talk about that, that takes the attention away from what at least folks like Kendi and D'Angelo and Coates believe is the real issue, which is, is the white supremacy. And, you know, and they can't tolerate any, it, and this is why McWhorter says it's a religion. You have to be excommunicated because they cannot tolerate any kind of conflict with the ideology. Yeah, I know. It's. I mean, I, I see the religious. When I came back in 2014 um, to North America, and I saw all this stuff, first thing that popped in my head is like, we're getting secular blasphemy laws. Like, when did this happen? I mean, <laughs> there are so many parallels to religion. I mean, especially like the whole whiteness thing. Like when you read into Calvinism and about total depravity, like the whole idea of whiteness just sounds like total depravity. You just really replace sin with whiteness. You know, it's just. It's awful. Um, look, I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, you know, thank you very much for your time. If you've got any last minute words to you know, give to people about education, what they should focus on, anything like that? Really? Well, you know, I'm, I'm writing a book called Agency. And, and the reason I'm writing it, and, it's, and it's, it's designed for young people, because, and young people of all races, you know, this is, it's really important for young people to have a sense of agency, right? This idea that they do have the ability to be a master of their own destiny, you know, that they, that they do uh, have control in their life. And, but part of that is that young people have to understand that they live in a good, if not great country, that's not hostile to their dreams, that they have a shot, but part of the responsibility is theirs, you know, this doesn't mean that we they should pull themselves up by the bootstraps because that's not it either. There's a role for mediating institutions for strong schools. And that's why school choice is so important. Strong families, which is why it's so important to speak to young people about the pathways in life that give them the best shot at success. And having children outside of marriage, especially if you're 24 and under, 
is usually a recipe for poverty and disaster for everyone in the equation. You know, having a faith commitment. Like these things are elements of how you can cocoon yourself in, in environments with people that love you, that people that want to support you. And yes, there might be these other forces, but that those cocoons are pretty strong and they've been, they've been proven pretty strong for millions and millions and millions of people of all races. So, you know, that, that, you know, that's my message that I'm very cognizant of how the real world works. And the, the, the way I, the reason I run schools is I want to prepare young people for that world and all the positive elements that they have the power to control. And so, you know, I'm, uh, thank you for having me on. And, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we as a country can have honest conversations like the ones we just had. Well, thank you very much for coming on. And that was a, a positive note to end on after like, actually my last, last episode I recorded, I was speaking with Razib Khan and now it got kind of depressing, <laughs> but so this was a, a good change to be ended on something positive. Thanks again for listening. Come on, coming on, sorry. And thanks everyone for listening.